first of all, let me say uh, uh, thank you, Dean Marr, for the welcome. And, and uh, it's an honor to be with you, uh, all of you here today. And a special thanks uh, to the Richard Nixon Foundation, um, as well as to the UCI Long U.S. China Institute for the welcome who made it all possible for me to be here. But I think um, w what I'd like to talk about during this presentation is if I, the assumption is that many of you have either heard about President Nixon's trip to China, you might know something about it. Uh, if you didn't prior to today, you, this, the video was certainly a good orientation. But really, uh, the my focus of my remarks is on a lesser known aspect of it, which is really the, the years of planning that went behind uh, that handshake in 1972. Uh, and you could, uh, at least three, three years of planning in the Nixon White House but really even going back further to the seeds that uh, then former Vice President Nixon planted in his, his um, uh, groundbreaking foreign affairs article in 1967, Asia after Vietnam, where he, he uh, sort of planted the seed for the new relationship uh, that the U.S. and that the PRC should have uh, once the, uh, uh, the irritant of Vietnam is, uh, is resolved. And so um, uh, what, I, uh, what we'll do here is I'll take you through a, a series of documents. Um, you'll see Nixon's own handwriting about this trip. You'll hear his own voice, as well as that of Henry Kissinger, who you already saw in the film, his uh, close partner, his national security advisor, working on the plans for this trip. And so take you through a, a handful of these documents that illustrate kind of the, the, the backstory of what you saw um, uh, in that video. Um, these subjects have all been on my mind a lot in the last few years. Um, I'm currently finishing a book that is uh, the first full biography of American diplomat Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr., who, besides being Nixon's running mate in 1960 against, on the other side, Kennedy and Johnson, um, Lodge was so important to f on this issue and so important as an advisor to five presidents. So I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this issue in working in archives across North America, in Europe, and, and especially in Vietnam in the last couple of years working on this book. So it's, it's perfect timing in, in terms of my being here. And then one of the themes that comes away from, from my own research is these are two sides, these are two nations that didn't have the formalities of protocol that permitted communication. I mean, there were no formal relationships. Um, protocol enables the kind of diplomatic communications you need to set up a trip like that. Where you don't have it, protocol can be extremely limiting uh, because you don't know who to call on the other side. Uh, it's, it's, it's complicated. And it, just to figure out you know, which Americans should contact which Chinese, and you dare not go sort of above your rank or below your rank. And it's very, it's very, there's a lot of formality, and the formality is very, very important when it comes to diplomacy, especially when you're starting something and making a first impression on the American side. And so the, 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 um, the first uh, document I pull up here is, is arguably one of the very first uh, from uh, this subject during while well, Nixon's president, dated February 1st, 1969. So less than two weeks into the Nixon presidency, more than three years before <clears throat> the trip and the handshake you saw, uh, the, the key quote kind of in the middle part of this, this is February 1st, the president, Nixon, writing to Kissinger, his newly appointed national security advisor, I think we should give every encouragement to the attitude that this administration is exploring possibilities of rapprochement with the Chinese. This, of course, should be done privately and should be under no circumstances get into the public prints, I mean the media, from this direction. 
however, in contact with your friends, meaning sort of Kissinger's academic, national security friends. He had come from Harvard as part of that community, worked for Kennedy and Johnson before the Nixon years. Uh, in particular, in any ways you might have to get this Polish source, which is one of the channels they were reaching the Chinese through, I would continue to plant that idea of rapprochement. I mean, very, very early, uh, I think, think you know, Nixon, even to get his inner circle on board with this idea, took a tremendous amount of work, that in the midst of this war, which was the dominant issue in the 1968 presidential election, you're going to do what? <laughs> I mean, it was really kind of earth-shaking. And there's even some accounts where Kissinger was somewhat skeptical early on that this was possible in the midst of so many other challenges at home and abroad. And, uh, and we'll move forward. Um, and so what, what, we, uh, what we see before playing this particular tape, and I'll give you a little background um, getting into the tape. In the first two years after that memo, 1969, 1970, they tried a little bit of everything. Uh, again, they had no direct contact. There was no PRC embassy in Washington. There was no American embassy in Peking then, as it was called. Um, so after two years of trying a little bit of everything, I mean, they worked, they tried to identify third countries that were friendly to each. They worked through first the Polish. The Vatican had a role at one point. Uh, the Romanians. Uh, later, we'll see a little bit more about Pakistan. Um, and so again, trying to get the di diplomacy, the formality of the communication going, that would then lead to the direct talks which were needed between Americans and Chinese. So after two years of trying a little bit of everything, now we move forward here, um, April 28th, uh, 1971, uh, Nixon's strategy starts to emerge, and you hear it on this, this brief recording. Uh, his strategy is two summits. He wants a summit with the Soviets, and he wants a summit with the, Russian, uh, the Chinese, in that order, because he saw the Soviets as being the immediate concern, he saw the Chinese as being a longer-term concern for American foreign policy, and he hoped that each could help apply pressure on the North Vietnamese, either through direct pressure or through diplomatic isolation to end the Vietnam War. And so that was the strategy he had pursued. Now, this is April of 71. Uh, some of you have heard the term ping-pong diplomacy. And earlier this month, the American ping-pong team, or table tennis team, had been in Tokyo for the international uh, tournaments. And while they were there, the, the American team, primarily teenagers, school age, I mean, a couple of people who were a little older, but these were more or less kids, we would call them. Um, they received an invitation in Tokyo to visit, an invitation by Premier Joe Enlai to visit the PRC and ultimately to have an audience with them. And this is unheard of. Um, and there are other tapes we could show you. There's one in particular that I recall where Kissinger comes in to the Oval Office and um, he says something like to the president, just the two of them in the Oval Office, Mr. President, you'll never believe what Joe Enlai just said to the ping pong team. He said, your visit here begins an entire, entirely new era in relations between our countries. And Nixon says, he said what to a ping pong team? And you can imagine, this is a, so it shows even Nixon and Kissinger, I think to a degree, being a little caught off guard, that it's clear to me the Chinese wanted this very badly too, and not just the Americans. And, and at times they were, uh, Nixon and Kissinger, who in the American, from the American writers, the historians and the political scientists, put most of the focus on uh, Nixon and Kissinger. But I think as we learn more about this issue, the Chinese will also get a great deal of credit because they clearly were motivated to make this happen. So let's listen to the brief clip. April 1971, things are starting to move forward uh, on the initiative. What we are praying for basically is the Chinese summit. That's my point to be. That is the big play. 
Now, that's only, but that's half of all. The other part of the play is to do something about this war. That's the other half of it. And with that, I think these guys can fit people where they needed peace, and they said it'll be not that. They need peace now. It's got to affect the North. It's the one advantage of a public adversary. Well, let me say, before I get there, say the war has to be pretty well settled. But I guess, we, I guess we have to say that we can't come there until we have some idea that there must be, the, the fact must be known in the United States in the war is settled. I can't come to China before that. They're so scared of their own city. I'll tell them about better off having you visit next May or April and keeping it hanging and daring the Russians to attack them with a presidential visit of the That's what I think they want. I do not believe they want to. So this really began a, a key turning point in Nixon's strategy to get to China. He always thought he was going to have a summit with the Soviets first, um, but the Chinese showed more interest than the Soviets. And so the priorities for Nixon reverse. He sees the opportunity to first go to China and then secondly to have a, a, the Moscow summit. And that became the priority that, that actually happened in 1972. That was never part of the plan. The plan was always, Nixon always thought he was going to have a, it would be harder to go to China. Too much to talk about, too much to work out before he could go. He thought the Soviet summit would be much easier to come together. As you can see, he kind of was able to learn as he went along, we've got to change strategies here. And China becomes the first priority for the president. Um, and then on, uh, on this, uh, um, moving on, um, a month later, uh, May of, of 19, uh, May of May 27 of 1971, uh, we see Nixon. How do we get the message to China that we want a summit? We see that Nixon is still hindered by this very inefficient communication. He's got to send messages. I mean, nowadays, I guess foreign leaders do it by text message or something. But back then, I mean, it takes five days to get a message to China through the Pakistanis. It takes then they they wait several days to think about it and respond. It takes a minimum of seven days to get it back to the U.S. And we're talking sort of two weeks almost to have just a basic exchange of messages between the two. And so you see in this next clip that I'll play how inefficient the system was. There had to be a better way, and the two sides needed to talk directly without a third party, also to maintain secrecy. Fewer people who knew about it could talk about it. So we'll listen to that clip now. Now on the China that we're buying exactly around the Thank you. 
presidential visit. We told them I'd be authorized to arrange the visit of a public ambassador uh, if it was not used for the attention of the president. And in addition to a presidential visit. Yeah, in addition to a presidential visit. And for them, Mr. President, after all, they are revolutionaries, but who think of this peasant, former peasant Mao, the great march, and then the president of the United States comes to Peking at the end of his life. That's, well, that's why it's smart. Dr. Kissinger said, almost certainly yes. And what he meant was, almost certainly the Chinese will agree to direct contact where the President Nixon could directly send a representative and work out the details of the summit that had to be planned uh, for Nixon's visit. But the complexity of that, it's hard to believe they got anything done and that it stayed secret in the process. Now the big issue that's been raised a couple times already in these, in these, um, these clips is uh, what will the Russian reaction be when they realize they've been moved to second place, second priority? And so Nixon and Kissinger spend a lot of time uh, guessing uh, how far could they go? I mean, could they start a war with us? You know, could they cause trouble in the Middle East? Could they cause trouble in Berlin, which has always been a problem during the Cold War? Um, and so the, the next clip, the next one is about what will the Russians think about all this? And then the one after that is what do our allies think about all this? So, you know, once you get it going, um, now you have a problem. What's everyone else's reaction going to be to this? And so the, ne the, the next conversation here on July 1st, 1971, is not just any other day. Um, it's in the morning of July 1st, 1971. Kissinger leaves that afternoon to be the secret emissary uh, to China. It travels through India and then Pakistan in the Chinese uh, PRC airspace. Um, so this is, this is his final briefing before leaving the White House and becoming that emissary uh, to China uh, when they discuss it's only, so, it's only a matter of time until the Soviets figure out what we're doing. What are we going to say once they figure it out? You said that now that we can go visit China as far as Russia. If the Russians do not give us a summit, we could go in December or yeah. late November or summer yeah. to China. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you think, Al? Yes, sir. And we could tell the Russians, and Anatole can go home and say, you crazy sons of bitches, yeah. you screwed it up. Right. And uh, actually, technically, if we don't get it by the sevens, it doesn't make any difference what they decide. Yeah. Al can't get it to me fast enough. Yeah. The other point, of course, is this. And if we don't get it there, the seventh, uh, on the other hand, you've got to figure that the Russians then, if you go to China, there is a chance that they'll blow over No, they won't blow over us. They won't blow that. But they'll blow us off. And uh, the risk we done with on the other hand, hand this, where this person has to problems from that. Well, if they blow salt, they could blow salt, they could, uh, they could jack up the Middle East, and they could start yeah. raising hell in the Caribbean. That's correct. Now, of course, we can go hard right. They won't do it because they want to get along with the Germans. That's right. And in fact, our major problem in Berlin now is we're coming up with, I know we'll never get credit for it, but we're coming up with a really superb agreement on that. Yeah. Which is actually an improvement. Yeah, they still sing it. Yeah, but, you know, they are, the Russians are making so many concessions now that it's getting tough to... Uh, I've, got, uh, I've, I've got Rush held until July 20th. Yeah. So, in sum, they decide, who cares about the Russians? <laughs> um, they could stir up some problems, but China's more important, and that's what will dominate the news. And the, 
the, the issue of scheduling the second summit with the Soviets, if, they, if it's going to be canceled, let them cancel it. You know, let them be in the, let, let us have sort of a moral victory. Let them be the ones to, to stop the diplomacy on, our, on, on the, the second summit. So in the end, I think they, they concluded the Soviets were in a weak position diplomatically, and they could raise a little bit of trouble, um, but it would be overshadowed by anything going on between the U.S. and, and the PRC. And so uh, Kissinger leaves on, this is July 1st. Um, he comes back about a week later. Uh, on July 15th is when Nixon makes his national televised announcement on TV. A clip of it was in that video with, at the beginning. July 15th, 1971, he, he would be the first president to visit China, sort of on a date to be determined, as they were still working out the details. And so now, now that's happening, the scheduling of the summit. <clears throat> now, how do the American allies react, especially uh, the non-communist allies in Asia who would be very concerned, especially Taiwan, Japan, Korea, the nations that contributed troops to Vietnam, um, how would they react when they see their closest ally, the United States, is now all of a sudden making friends with the PRC, who many of the non-communist allies suspected were providing support for North Vietnam and during the Vietnamese War. And so it's a very delicate thing to handle, um, to make the different stakeholders comfortable with this really kind of earth-shaking thing that's about to happen once the, uh, uh, the summit is set up. So we, then we go to a clip uh, of the Allies. How do we, what do we tell the Allies? And what Nixon ultimately, what they do, Nixon and Kissinger do, is they decide on a strategy that they think will make the Chinese happy, but also make the Allies happy. And that's very tricky. And the strategy they choose is when the war is over, the, the non-communist allies in Asia don't want to see a dramatic withdrawal of American troops out of Okinawa, out of South Vietnam, out of the Philippines, and other places they're stationed, because there is still memory of World War II and the Japanese. And so the, the argument uh, that they make to the allies is that we need to stay there uh, because it'll provide support for you, and we don't want the Japanese, who constitutionally are not allowed to rearm with the Constitution they got at the end of World War II. And likewise to China, uh, Nixon and Kissinger are able to convince the Chinese that you don't want us to leave completely out of Asia when the war is over. We are a source of stability in the region for you, uh, and, and you also would not want the Japanese to fill the void uh, of departing Americans. And so these are kind of the points in the background of, of this next clip here. Well, really what they're doing, this is October of 71, they're rehearsing the points that might be used with the Chinese as they're planning just a few months away now for the summit. Out of the United States is potentially more dangerous to them 
than in Asia with the United States. Now, you made that point, but I hit it right on the nose and say, now we're going to stick around. For example, we think we'll, we'll take uh, the Taiwan that we know in Afghanistan, Korea, we'll even work that out in the horrible way. Except, except I worked out the horrible but also, but I would say very, very firmly in the fact, now look, the United States is a Pacific power and Asian power, and we're going to maintain a presence there. So that uh, becomes the strategy. Um, and then our final document um, are, are these Nixon would like to take on legal size yellow, uh, yellow notepads these long notes. Uh, and, and at the, the Nixon Presidential Library, there are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of pages of these. During most of his political life, this was always his practice to take notes, to rehearse something, to prepare an idea, to think through something. Um, th these notes were written on more than just any ordinary day. Uh, they were written while he was on his modified Boeing 707 that we know as Air Force One, crossing the Pacific, going to China on February 20th, 1972, the beginning of that trip that he said would, the week, was the week that changed the world. So these were a page of the notes that he was writing to himself, kind of rehearsing points um, and positions about what he was about to take part in uh, during the summit in, in, in China. And just a few points that, that stand out uh, that are over on the typed in the right hand side. So it, it takes a certain skill to read his handwriting sometimes. So we, we've, we've typed out a few of the points. But at the first part, he thinks in terms of what do they want, the Chinese. And obviously, they want to build up their world credentials. They want to solve the matter of the status of Taiwan. Uh, they, want, they want the US out of Asia, or at least most of the US out of Asia, in terms of the war. They want the war ended, what we want. We also want the war ended, Indochina. Uh, we want to, um, you know, in the future, what kind of relationship do we want now, and what do we want in the future? And then the focus of a lot of his remarks, as you also hear on some of the tapes, is what do we both want, because that's the common ground between the nations. And what you see there, uh, both sides uh, want to reduce danger in, in Asia, uh, conflict in the world. They want a more stable Asia that allows economic growth and the war being over. Uh, and both sides, the U.S. and the PRC, are concerned about the USSR, the Soviet Union. So the focus of much of the summit talk was, was there certainly were disagreements, but it was to focus on common areas between the two. And so in, in conclusion, uh, just a, um, a couple of remarks I'll make. Uh, this is just a sampling of the many records that are at the Nixon Presidential Library. The Nixon Foundation has recently done kind of an online exhibit that contains many more audio files and other documents in case you're interested. You can find them online. You don't have to go to Yorba Linda. Um, but the, um, uh, this is just a sampling. There are many, many more we could have chosen. I think one of the key takeaways for me as someone who really makes a career out of studying this presidency and this time period is, you know, you look today at the relationship between the U.S. and China. It's complicated. Uh, there are areas of agreement. There are areas of disagreement. And my takeaway from listening to I think now all of the audio recordings that have been released, there's a 3,400 hours of Nixon tapes, is that I think this complicated relationship is something that Nixon understood back then. But I think what drove him to do the things that you see in these audio, listen to the audio files and see in some of these records, I think Nixon believed it was better to try to live together than to try to live apart, a long run. That maybe their interests of the two nations were not coincided immediately, but in the long run. Nixon said a number of times in the tapes, in five years, our primary concern is the Soviet Union. In 25 years, our concern should be the PRC. 
better to make peace and become friends now while we can than to wait in 25 years when we're so divided that it's impossible you know, to be friends. Um, and then the final point I'll make is that as interesting as these are, as enlightening as some of these documents are, um, we're still missing much of the story. Uh, many of the American documents have been de declassified only in, in recent years. There's more records being released all the time uh, at the library. But I think we're also missing something else. We're missing a lot from the Chinese side. Um, and not very many records in provincial archives, it's easier. Some scholars have had access. But the level of openness in archives is much, is much lower. And I think Americans today, historians, I think Americans who just were interested in the subject could learn a lot from the Chinese perspective from this, from this time period. And so my hope is, is one day that, that we can learn that and more records are, are, are open. Because I think until that happens, this relationship that, that President Nixon envisioned um, and the story that you heard here today you know, will never be as complete uh, as it could be until we have the perspective. So that's kind of the end of my remarks. And then I'll turn it over to my other panelists. And we'll have plenty of time for uh, your questions uh, when we get to the finish point here. Thank you. I'm Matt Beckman. I'm a political scientist at UCI. Uh, teach and research on the presidency in particular, modern presidents. Uh, taught a class on Nixon, and so I love this stuff. So it's exciting to be part of it. So thanks to the School of Social Sciences. I lost track of where Bill is, um, to the foundation, to the Long Institute. This is just wonderful. Um, so I was what I was going to talk a little bit about really quickly is sort of the nature of presidential leadership and the challenges of it and how Nixon's trip to China was so interesting as an illustrative lesson in leadership, uh, presidential leadership. So the first thing is, one of the unique, uh, in my presidency class, one of the things I talk a lot about is how presidents are so often frustrated by when they get to office. They imagine taking on the most powerful man in the world and having all these vast powers, and quickly you get into office and it's often frustrating that things are not as easy as they seem. Um, President Truman declared, I sit here all day trying to persuade people to do things they ought to have the sense to do without my persuading them. That's all the, <laughs> that's all the powers of the president amount to. Uh, characteristically, Lyndon Johnson was a little more uh, saltier. He said, uh, being president is like being a jackass in a hailstorm. There's nothing to do but stand there and take it. <laughs> um, so that, this is pretty typical that, you know, you get it. You campaign, the, one of the famous lines is always, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. You have these lofty ideals. You talk about all the things you're going to do when you become president, and then you become president, and then there's just constant challenges. So I thought I would talk about just a few of those challenges and then how President Nixon was able to overcome them in this unique instance. So one of the common challenges is just timing. Um, it seems like when you become president and you walk into the Oval Office for the first time, it's totally empty that the world is your oyster and you know, what we, there's so many things we can do and each day is so great. Um, but then you get in and you're quickly overrun with, you've got 3,000 jobs to fill and you don't know that many people. And <laughs> some of the people you know couldn't be confirmed in the jobs that you'd like them to be confirmed in. Um, and so you're having to deal with identifying people, confirm, getting through them through Senate confirmation, all the just sort of 
it's like running a startup business, but like the size of the federal government. So in real time, you're having to do all these things, and it eats up the precious honeymoon window that you have. Um, and so timing is brutally constraining on presidents. In fact, when you finally feel like dealing with Congress is slower than you expect, dealing with the administration even is slower and more difficult than you expect. So by the time you finally get kind of up and going, there's a midterm election on the horizon and it's hard to get anything done when Congress is thinking about themselves. And usually, as in the more recent election, the first midterm doesn't go that well for the president. Uh, you tend to lose seats in your first midterm election. And when you do, that means the third year is a lot more difficult than the first year. You know, it's one of these ironies is um, in looking at presidential tapes and records, they often are talking about how great it's gonna be and how exciting it is. And they're looking forward to like, once we get going, it's really gonna be great. And then by year three, they're looking back to like, remember the good old days when it was easy. <laughs> um, and then you're quickly into reelection mode. I mean, we already see, here we are at the beginning of the third year of the Trump presidency. And the reelection campaign <laughs> and season is, is quickly upon us. And so it's very difficult, the windows. And then quickly you're into your second term, which is just not nearly as, uh, usually not as fruitful as the first term. So timing is really hard. One of the uh, things you see is that if you aren't getting going on day one, you're quickly on defense on day two. Second thing is people. Um, as much as the presidents are these kind of gigantic personas, they take on the most important job in the world, but the reality of the modern presidency is that you can't do the job you were elected to do. It's just too hard. There's too many big issues. There's too many demands on your time, too many expectations of what you're gonna do. And so you have to rely on other people to do the things that ultimately uh, accrue to you at least the credit or blame. And in trying to fill these people who are gonna do these insanely important things, people vary in terms of their competence, people vary in terms of their loyalty. I mean, all you need to do is come to a faculty meeting to see how difficult it can be <laughs> to make a decision, uh, much less to have some sane deliberation. And so presidents can't just say, I'll, hell, I'll just do it myself. They have to rely on other people. Well, it's very hard to find really world-class talent that can accomplish things that the president would want done anyway, rather than and not do it just for their own glory or whatever. Um, and so you kind of see this challenge of people. I'll talk about Nixon in a second here. Uh, there's always the challenge of unexpected events. You start saying like, here's our, uh, the joke in the Trump administration is always like, this is infrastructure week. And then by, you know, 9 a.m. on Monday, infrastructure week is gone and you're dealing with whatever the latest news is. That is true for every president, that whatever it is you think you're gonna be doing in any particular day, there's always some worldly event, some economic shock, there's some news scandal, Congress starts doing something crazy. Um, you're, if, as much as you wanna say, here's what we're gonna work on this week, you're constantly not being able to work on the things you wanna work on and you're working on things that other people are throwing at you. Um, and so those are always a challenge. So that gets us to Nixon and his trip to China. One of the things is like, we talk about it as the week that changed the world, and it was. Um, but one of the things that's so defining about it is that it wasn't just sort of a serendipitous event. It's not like, oh, this sort of merged and this week is opening up and let's take advantage of an opportunity. Nixon is from day 12, laying the groundwork of like, this is a priority, let's start working on this, let's think about it. It's, the communication is difficult, the people are difficult. There is nothing easy about it. Um, and so it isn't like just some opportunity emerges and, and Nixon takes advantage of it. He is creating this opportunity by laying the groundwork. He's planning, he's thinking, he's looking for opportunities um, and creating them as much as taking advantage of them. 
Um, and the timing, he does it early in his administration. So by the time he goes in year four, um, he's been working on it for three years and they are prepared to take advantage when, the, when an unexpected communication comes at a, to the, you know, the ping pong diplomacy. They, they know they're ready to capitalize rather than sort of like, oh, wow, we should think about how we would do this. They have got people in place to do it. So that gets me to the people. Um, Henry Kissinger is unique. Uh, he is one of the few people in the world at the time who really had a strategic vision of how all these pieces could fit together in a way that other people didn't. Um, and one of the things that we forget now, but even, I mean, Republicans in the Nixon administration were super antagonistic to the idea of reaching out to China. A lot of the pressure that uh, Nixon is anticipating is coming from the right, not from uh, as much as from the left. I mean, your opponents are always going to criticize you. Um, but your allies, when they criticize you, it really it causes trouble. And Nixon knows that the Republicans and the sense that he's selling out Taiwan is going to be a huge... Um, but, and Kissinger expresses some skepticism early on. But Nixon kind of pushes him, like, let's go, we can do this, and let's keep thinking about it. And they keep deliberating and talking and anticipating how to deal with it. But Kissinger is an April. So one of the funny things is when they first get to China and they get this unexpected message that Mao, Chairman Mao is ready, would like to see you tonight, they jump in the cars and it's like an ambassador, uh, Kissinger, and Nixon, and they leave out the Secretary of State because he isn't as... <laughs> loyal or uh, they're a little more nervous that he would be as much of a team player. So they leave him behind and then a whole bunch of the conversation is like, what are we going to tell him? This is going to be awkward. <laughs> um, but Nixon had in place his people that he trusted. He could send uh, Kissinger to China knowing that when he comes back, this guy will have done exactly what I would have done if I had been there. I can trust his judgment about what we should push on, what we can't push on, what, where, we, where an opportunity is. He, I'm not going to be embarrassed because Kissinger totally misread what the signals were. Um, so Kissinger, having the right people at the right place at the right time. Um, another thing that is really important is this question of uh, being able to multitask. The, as I was saying, all, there's all these unexpected events. So we talk about Nixon going to China, and, and when you pull it out of the world and you put it up on a screen, it looks so clean. Like, oh, wow, that was really a good idea. They did a great job. This is so well, th you know, what an event. What we undervalue at the time is the sort of bit players in this are like the Vietnam War is going on, and it's, they're struggling to find a way to get out of it. Um, we're having a huge crisis of the whole Bretton Woods economic system of having a gold standard. Uh, inflation is really pressuring. They're doing price controls, wage controls. They are trying all sorts of things to deal with these big issues that, in, in, not to mention, obviously, the Cold War is raging on. And so to be able to multitask is a really fundamental challenge of presidential leadership. And that even though it wasn't a pressing concern in the same way that Nixon was able to partition out time and energy to stay focused on this longer term goal, uh, Al Gore always told a joke or always made a metaphor for his experience in the Clinton administration was that he said he would go watch his kids at the so play soccer and that the, one of the problems was wherever the soccer ball went, the whole team went. That nobody stayed in their position, just everybody chased the ball. <laughs> and he's like, it feels like looking at the Clinton White House, that like whatever the press says that day, everybody wants to work on that, that, or that day, rather than stay focused on the things that they, you know, is their purview. Um, the Nixon administration was incredibly disciplined at staying in their lane, focusing on their things, keeping an eye on 
long-term goals as well as not just the short-term ones. And the China really illustrates that more than anything else in his presidency, in my view. Um, the final thing that I would say is related to Nixon's lessons for leadership is it kind of just shows the importance of knowledge and imagination and pragmatism. This kind of combination that presidents all want to have these if you watch any movie about the presidency, there's always like these defining moments where the president's forced to choose between like something good and something politically expedient. And it's like this moral test or whatever. And they choose the moral thing to do. And it turns out it's also the electoral thing to do. And it's all happy and it all wraps up cleanly. And, you know, it seems great. In real life, it's much more muddy, much more complicated. And one of the things that I think Nixon exemplifies in this is one, he knows, he knows a lot coming into the presidency. He's been vice president, he's done all these other things. He, he has a sense of the world, he has a sense of the people, he has a sense of the opportunities that he can see that other people can't. And he knows how to get in there and be ready to tackle them. He's not learning on the job in any meaningful way. He has imagination, you know, he cut his chops being anti-communist, being super anti-communist. He was famous for being anti-communist and yet, here he gets into the office and he sees opportunities like he isn't just stuck to the things that he had said before or the lessons he had learned before. He is willing to, when he gets unexpected messages, they sort of adapt and he's like, I know this is going to be an awkward conversation because of some of the things I've said before, things my allies and friends will believe, but I can, I can see that this is a good idea and we should take advantage of it. Uh, which gets to the final thing, which I would say is like pragmatism. Uh, Nixon was incredibly pragmatic in all sorts of ways as a president. And although we often like highlight presidential moments where it's like the biggest wins, the, the VE day or whatever it is, um, a lot of presidential leadership is pragmatic on the day, you know, at the time that it's occurring. And so when you look at the Shanghai communique, a lot of this, uh, there is no, there are very few like un, un, uh, uncompromising positions. Like on Taiwan, the Nixon administration is incredibly compromising. They're very willing to sort of leave open-ended, uh, in fact, to agree to a one-China policy. Um, when they asked for um, the Chinese help in ending, putting pressure on the North Vietnamese to end the war, the North Vietnamese are like, no, <laughs> you guys made a mistake getting in there and you should have to fix it yourself. They don't get a lot of, you know, there isn't a lot of agreement on that. Um, when it comes to Japan, they, the U.S., the Chinese want the U.S. out, but the... Americans are like, you would be very, as much as you want us out, you'd be really scared to have a nuclear Japan. And if we leave, that's what they're going to do. And it's like, well, all right, that's a good point, right? Um, <laughs> and they don't talk about things very much. They don't engage much on human rights, on trade. So what, one of the things, though, is I think that this is what leadership looks like when you look at study presidents. And Nixon exemplifies that, that he isn't demanding it's my way or the highway. It's sort of like, let's get in there and sort of, feel it out in the longer term horizon, this is a first step. And if we can get 20% today, we can always come back for another 20% another day. We don't need to win everything today. Um, so that leads me with the quotation that Dwight Eisenhower had, which in some ways, you know, uh, uh, I, Nixon having been vice president, they were very different in so many ways, but similar, I think, in some of their conceptions of leadership, which is, uh, Eisenhower said, I'll tell you what leadership is. It's persuasion and conciliation and patience. It's a long, it's long, hard, slow work. I think Nixon's trip to China really exemplifies that and uh, the lessons for presidential leadership.
So, hello everyone. I'm Emily Baum. I teach modern Chinese history here. Uh, and I'm going to be talking about Nixon's visit to China from the Chinese perspective. And I wanted to start off with uh, a bit of a disclaimer. And that disclaimer is that there is no Chinese counterpart to the Nixon Foundation and the Nixon Library. Uh, Luke had mentioned that there are 3,400 hours of Nixon tapes, there are zero hours of Mao tapes. Um, and so, uh, this really remains kind of a historical void for us. Uh, this is a, a large mystery that we're still waiting to unravel, and a lot of what we know is merely speculation given the information that is available. Um, so since I only have a couple of minutes, I just wanted to highlight um, two considerations that likely prompted uh, Mao and uh, the premier at the time, Zhou Enlai, uh, to extend this invitation to Nixon to come to China in 1972. Um, so the first consideration really has to do with the relationship between China and the Soviet Union at this time. Um, uh, the relationship between these two uh, political entities had long been strained. Um, from as early as uh, the middle of the 1950s, we start to see ideological tensions arising between China and the Soviet Union. Uh, and these ideological tensions really start to build up uh, following Khrushchev's proclamation of his new policy of uh, peaceful coexistence with the United States. Now, when Khrushchev announces this policy of peaceful coexistence with the United States, it infuriates Mao, uh, because from Mao's perspective, he simply didn't think it was possible for a capitalist country and a communist country to get along. He has this very famous phrase, the east wind is blowing over the west wind, uh, that capitalism is on its way out, that communism is on the rise. Uh, and so when Khrushchev uh, promotes this policy of uh, peaceful uh, cooperation or peaceful coexistence, uh, Mao interprets this as Khrushchev selling out to the United States and betraying his ally. Now, by the time we get to the late 1960s, these ideological tensions had started to morph into an outright military conflict, or at least the threat of a military conflict. In 1968, the Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia, and the Chinese leadership interprets this as a signal that the Soviet Union is not afraid to intervene militarily in the affairs of other countries, even in the affairs of its ostensible allies. By 1969, there are several uh, conflicts along uh, the Sino-Soviet border. The Soviet Union stations upwards of a million troops along the border. They have thousands of missiles aimed at Beijing. Uh, and the Chinese leadership was so frightened uh, by the possibility of a nuclear war with the Soviet Union that at a certain point, uh, members of the Chinese Communist Party are moved out of Beijing and they are put into hiding. Right? So they're really quite scared uh, of the possibility of military threat breaking out uh, between the Soviet Union and China. Now, it was in this context that Mao um, and other leaders of the Communist Party, in particular Zhou Enlai at the time, start to interpret the Soviet Union as being a bigger military threat than the United States. Um, they recognize that the United States really has its hands full with the conflict in Vietnam, that they're probably not going to start a military conflict with China, whereas the Soviet Union could potentially start a military conflict with China. So for the first time since the Chinese Communist Party rises to power in 1949, uh, suddenly the Soviet Union seems like the bigger threat, uh, and the United States is appearing more and more like a lesser threat. 
Now, the second consideration has to do with um, the domestic context in China at the time. Uh, when Nixon makes his visit to China in 1972, uh, China is still admired in the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution is this 10-year-long movement uh, that lasts from 1966 up, to, up until Mao's death in 1976 that is just full of factional struggles and power struggles uh, within the upper echelons of the party leadership. And by the time Mao dies in 1976, thousands, if not millions of people have been killed. Um, they've been imprisoned. They have been struggled against. They have been demoted uh, from their positions of power. So by the early 1970s, I mean, Mao, he's starting to get up there in age. He's suffering from health problems. He knows that he is not going to be a around that much longer. And he's kind of surveying all of the chaos that has ensued as a result of the Cultural Revolution. Uh, and it's in this context that he starts to think to himself that potentially a rapprochement with the United States would not only give China a way out of the Cultural Revolution and allow China to start to heal from the trauma that the Cultural Revolution has imposed, but it could potentially give China the opportunity to achieve things that it has long tried to achieve but has up until this point not been able to achieve. So things like economic growth, uh, the Chinese economy had been stagnant uh, for a long time due to years and years of revolutionary activity. Uh, it would give them the opportunity to achieve more scientific and technological development. The Soviet Union uh, had pulled out all of its uh, scientific and technological experts. And so during the period of the Cultural Revolution, scientific development had basically come to a standstill. Um, it would give China the opportunity to re-enter the international community. One of the things that Mao really wanted was an opportunity to get a seat at the UN. Uh, and finally, and perhaps most tantalizingly for Mao, uh, he believed that by um, pursuing this rapprochement with the United States, it could potentially give him the opportunity to regain sovereignty over Taiwan. Uh, and he really believed that this could potentially be like a feather in his cap in his final uh, crowning moment. Um, so there are really these two considerations that are going on, right? There's the military threat with the Soviet Union, uh, and then there are all these political considerations arise, arising from the Cultural Revolution. Um, but the last thing that I wanted to point out is that um, during this period in the early 1970s and the lead up to Nixon's visit to China, there was really no effort in the Chinese media um, to frame the United States as a friend or an ally. And in fact, um, if you look at uh, the People's Daily uh, in the days before Nixon's visit, I actually just looked this up last night because I was <laughs> curious about it. Um, but if you look at the People's Daily in the, in the days before Nixon's visit, it has this huge headline about how the United States is this imperialist aggressor that it's trampling on the rights of uh, revolutionary parties in Southeast Asia uh, and that the United States is still an enemy. Right? So there was no effort um, to try to justify Nixon's visit in ideological terms. Um, this was purely a politically strategic decision, uh, and it was a decision that left the vast majority of the Chinese people feeling very duped. Um, so I, uh, I'll end there, but I guess we're going to do a Q&A now. Okay. <laughs>